1: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: This all feels like something we'll get to later in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Should I clarify for our audience that I'm on a medicine right now that makes you, <laughs> like... jittery and kind of gives you some confusion so like just just to set up this episode and what it might be it's cocaine it is not cocaine hi everyone and welcome to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant.
3: And I'm Emily, a classic scholar
2: ish. And we have reached the season finale of the first season of Percy Jackson and the Olympians. The prophecy comes true. And it sure did. It, it certainly sure did. did come true. <laughs>
3: um, you're, of course, referring to your prophecy.
2: Uh
3: (laughs) When I first saw the beginning of this episode, I died. For those who haven't seen Phoebe's video essay analyzing the writer's room of Percy Jackson because of their work on Black Sails, her video essay begins talking about (laughs) a scene where the two rival characters have a flashback sequence of one teaching the other how to sword fight. Right before a showdown sword fight in the woods between them at the end of the episode, that's where she started. <laughs> so walk walk us through the emotions, Phoebe. How how did how did how did uh, the beginning of this episode play for you?
2: Well, I I knew it was coming. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I I did inadvertently spoil it for her. Yeah,
2: I did immediately figure it out when Emily said. Uh, That there was something that I needed to record my reaction to. That was where my brain immediately went was, oh, it must start with a flashback sequence where Luke is teaching Percy how to sword fight.
3: (laughs) In my defense, that's not why I texted her that. I texted her that because of the Luke's lines
2: that start the episode. (laughs) Right, which was also exciting. But but I did immediately guess how that was going to go.
3: I have the screenshot of text. It's honestly pretty funny.
2: Yeah, it's like within two minutes I figured out how the episode was going to (laughs) start. And
3: you you texted me like the entire sequence as you described and I was just like, do I gaslight her or?
2: You should have. You should have because I went in there confident. (laughs) (laughs) The emotions I felt watching that were just vindication.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we need to do our spoiler warning.
2: Yes. Spoiler warning, as always, spoilers for Percy Jackson, Heroes of Olympus, and Trials of Apollo are all fair game. I don't see us talking too much about Heroes of Olympus this time around, but the first and third series, I have a feeling, will come up.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, and we will, of course, be spoiling the end of the show, but you, sh- you know that already. It's episode eight.
2: So, we start over blackness, once again. Luke's voice saying, look, you didn't ask to be a half-blood. And then like the opening shot, again, Percy on the beach in Montauk uh, out of focus and stepping into focus, but Mm -hmm. this time with his sword in his hand approaching Ares instead of Kronos. But same threat. He can just see it clearly now. I love a parallel, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) but the the full line that we're getting here from Luke is, look, you didn't ask to be a half-blood, but you are one that makes you part of something bigger than yourself.
3: I did note the the background when that line is spoken. We see Ares approaching when he's saying bigger than yourself. And I one thing I loved about this particular setting for the fight is that you see like this lighthouse in the background, but also these sort of like wooden tide thing, you know, like the wooden stakes that are there for the tide that are mm-hmm. fully exposed at low tide. That to me almost, they almost look like columns or ruins of columns. Mm. And I felt like visually it sort of, also took me back to a more ancient time which I really liked because then later when we cut to Percy and Luke in the woods they're also surrounded by ruins yeah which we'll talk about
2: (laughs) (laughs) so Luke isn't just narrating Luke is speaking to Percy this is a flashback we cut to Luke training Percy to sword fight out in the woods and Luke continues his line that makes you part of something bigger than yourself with which is good because you clearly can't handle this on your own I love this as the end of that sentence. <laughs> I felt mm-hmm. like when I when I first heard, that makes you part of something bigger than yourself, you know, my first thought is fate, the gods, prophecies, mm. stories, all of that. But then when Luke says, it's good because you can't handle this all on your own, it's clear that what he meant was, as a half-blood, you're part of a wider community. Mm. That the something bigger is actually like a group of people around you. Who understand you and who can support you here and i just want to reiterate how important it is to set up how much luke cares about other half-bloods because Mm -hmm. it's not just himself that he's fighting for
3: yeah we bring it down to earth from like this big lofty book beginning monologue to like yeah two guys in the woods hanging out just hanging out that's all they're doing also we get we get a disarm technique disarm technique reference
2: yeah, when he was like, let's work on that disarm. I was like, not the disarm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were so many shots in this scene that I was like, I, I can so see the fight choreography in this scene making a comeback in later seasons.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, I yeah. know I said I was okay with them not showing me the sword training scenes back in episode two, but I was lying and it's necessary. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically so that I can draw parallels between this scene and every other sword fight that comes next.
3: Um, I also was again I was looking at the background that (laughs) as per usual I did think one thing that really stuck out to me though was all these different like ruins in the forest like how long do we think Camp Half-Blood has been on Long Island?
2: Great question because I was also I know we talked about the buildings and stuff at Camp Half-Blood it looking sort of like an archaeological archaeological site but I don't remember them looking like ruined in the way that the ones in the forest are
3: yeah here's how I've made it make sense to me if we're going with book canon of the gods move around from place to place it made me wonder the way it's all set the way the set is dressed and everything if this is a place that is a lot older than like the the area on which it currently rests like if this is like sort of an almost like extra dimensional thing that just sort of sets down somewhere
2: so like these are the ruins of Yield Camp Half Blood.
3: Yeah, like Camp Pass. Like we've kind of moved to a different. Like yeah. it's moved and shifted around with the ages. That's how I was like making sense of it in my head.
2: Hmm. That makes sense. That there used to be something out here in the woods.
3: Yeah, because the other thing I was looking at, I believe the trees they're surrounded by are aspen trees. My first thought being aspen, asphodel. Also because. Fun fact about aspen trees is it looks like a bunch of small, skinny, white trunks, individual trees, but actually the tree is underground and all of those trunks are offshoots of all the same tree. Like you can be in a giant area of these white trunks and it can be one tree. I just, I like the fact that Percy and Luke are framed against aspen trees In both of their interactions in this episode. Mm. There's something about looking at this huge, gigantic cluster of flora and assuming that all of them are individuals when, in fact, they're all the same unit, the same organism, all interconnected, where you can't Mm. see. Mm -hmm. Something about it.
2: Within the family tree. Yeah. Because
3: the other thing, too, is like we've just had the fields of Asphodel last episode and like now when i'm looking at trees i can't help but think about like being trapped by regret i don't know so
2: Hmm. we'll come back to that this conversation that they have the when am i ever going to use this stuff and luke saying i told you and percy saying they'll come for me i know they have that was when it it fully clicked for me that not only was the opening of this show like those opening lines of the lightning thief quoting chronos It was also Mm. quoting Luke, who
3: clearly gave Percy
2: basically the exact same speech with the same warning, which means also the opening line is also quoting Luke in this moment. (laughs) Look, I didn't want to be a half-blood. Literally, that first page is just Percy saying various quotes from Luke and Kronos, (laughs) with runaway little hero before you get hurt, becoming turn away while you still can, they'll come for you, coming from Luke, Look. I didn't want to be a half-blood coming from Luke. Mm -hmm. But as they continue going back and forth, uh, Percy says, point is, they don't fight fair. It's not like there are rules. And Luke says, of course there are rules. See, that's what warfare is, knowing the rules so you can use them against your opponent. And Percy says, what's an example? And Luke says, there are all kinds of examples, like, and then Percy finishes the thought with single combat. I love Percy
3: being like, well, the monsters can't use swords, so why do I need to learn good sword fighting technique? Which I like because it feels like, it's a great question, and it feels like a subtle reminder to what I think Backbiter meant to me when we were reading The Lightning Thief of like, why do you need to learn how to fight other people with swords if all of the monsters are not people with swords? Mm -hmm. So I love that little moment.
2: The way this is shot so that it's Luke pointing his sword at Percy when it cuts back to the beach. Once again, it is Ares, but it is also Kronos, and it's also Luke on that beach right now, right then.
3: This is cinema.
2: Yeah, this is cinema. Um, But I was also just in love with this because Percy uses that exact rule against Luke in the next book. (laughs) Like, that's how he gets him in Sea of Monsters. I went back and reread the fight in Sea of Monsters after seeing that scene because I was like silently screaming to myself (laughs) because that's exactly like percy literally says one-on-one in both scenes in the scene in the sea of monsters and in uh the scene on the beach Um, and then goads luke by saying like what are you so afraid of and traps luke in a situation where he has to say yes to fighting percy one-on-one or else he'll look weak in front of his army so i just when i i actually I think I said, like, oh, out loud when, <laughs> when he said single combat because I realized that, like, that was about to be used against him. <laughs> this is something that Percy will do multiple times throughout the whole series. And I just like seeing Luke teaching it to him and then knowing that Percy is going to use it against him. Yeah, oh, that's great. The other thing about this scene, also related to Black Sails... I mean, considering this this is being made by the same people, <laughs> I feel like it's relevant. Yeah.
3: you c- Considering this is literally the first thing you brought up in your
2: video <laughs> essay... I think I'm allowed to just keep bringing it up. <laughs> yeah. um, I won't say names, because I don't want to completely spoil Black Sails for people, but one of the characters says... In Black Sails, you say you'll be teaching me how to fight, but if every man fights differently, it seems to me what you'll really be doing is teaching me how to defeat you. And the other character says, I'll take my chances. And then I was thinking about how much Luke trusts Percy right now by, doing, by teaching him. I was like, he really thinks he's going to join him in the end. But this actually might be something to bring up later, because I feel like mm-hmm. per, that's a big part of the conversation for later, is how much Luke thinks that Percy is going to actually join him. So maybe I'll hold on to that thought.
3: I was thinking about like the sort of Iliad of it all here, because of course I was. What else am I thinking about ever? Mm -hmm. Um, Because especially later in the scene, when Percy lays out his terms, and Ares qualifies the terms by saying, no funeral to Percy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the reason he gives is he can't have any evidence of his plan. But I'm sitting here like, a single combat resulting in no funeral for somebody, that's so Iliad coded. Mm. But this idea of single combat kind of being this make or break situation where you kind of it all is riding on one thing. It's all riding on one encounter is a staple of the Iliad. I love that this framing this framing also makes it feel like this is the moment where Percy is fully coming into his powers, not just as like somebody using a sword demigod on a quest but also like somebody who's finally understood what luke was talking about when he was talking about these rules and how to break them
2: Mm -hmm. yeah we get i do want to talk about where percy's at during this fight Mm -hmm. because so aries fight iconic moment the ocean swells and percy struggling to stand up says um i warned you if you're not careful you'll find out who i am following up on his threat from episode five and then the wave comes over him and he doesn't even move he just stands there but i do want to talk about that phrase the who i am because sally last episode said um i want him to know who he is before your family tells him who they want him to be and poseidon ended it by saying one day when he knows who he is i'll be right by his side And so I'm curious about Percy's perception of who who I am. What does he mean by, I'm showing you who I am in this moment? Like, what does that mean to him? I meant to think about this before asking the question, but I didn't. So we're just going to talk about it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I feel like a lot of the season thus far has been setting up Percy and his relationship with Poseidon being kind of embodied in his water powers. Like, the amount he's believed in his dad is sort of a direct correlation to his, like, the breathe moment, for example. Like, that's him believing and accepting Poseidon. So it's interesting to me that he, in using his water powers in this way to make this huge wave, doesn't feel connected to Poseidon for me. Like, it's connected to him because of the way Episode Seven ends, but it, Percy, for Percy, it's completely unconnected. Like, it's not because he's finally had an I love you dad moment that he's able to do this. It feels more like he's just coming much more into his own ability. Like, it's almost like him accepting his demigod identity, but not in a way where he's like, yes, I am of who my dad is, but more in a like, I am a demigod. I have powers and abilities and I have, and I, I am, I can be part of this world and learn the rules to break them. Which makes sense to me because he, you know, in the hero's journey, you go into the underworld to achieve some kind of enlightenment. Then you come out on the other side. I think that's where my brain's going.
2: What I'm getting stuck on, though, is the fact that he threatened to show who he really was in episode five. Meaning that he had some understanding of who I really am in episode five at the latest. Also, I, I just keep coming back to Sally like that quote in the last episode, I want him to know who he is before your family tells him who they want him to be. And so I want the answer to this question to not be, I've come into my power as Poseidon's son. You know, like I want it to be him before Poseidon or any part of this world really even becomes a factor.
3: Thinking about Book Percy and Show Percy, I'm wondering, the way I'm kind of thinking about it now is maybe like he's somebody who is always going to stand up to bullies. Like that... Mm -hmm. i don't know especially considering the later conversation about zeus i think that is one of his most defining traits
2: i mean those are the the times that those powers woke up this specific type of power too so
3: i think i think that's my i think that's that's that that's my final answer
2: Mm -hmm. yeah that's the answer i was looking for
3: was this a quiz as if there's like yeah (laughs) correct (laughs) turns out phoebe's just been quizzing me the whole time when she asked me a question that i think is open-ended
2: no, but that, that helps me put the whole thought together because I think in this moment, Percy, in saying this is who I am, I it's him saying that I am someone, you know, with this ma- massive wave coming in behind him and that look on his face. <laughs> it's him saying I am someone who will go to extreme lengths to accomplish my goals and protect the people who I care about and do what I think is right and... You, you don't want to know how far I'll go is basically what, what he's saying to mm-hmm. Ares in like episode 5 and mm-hmm. so after you connected the dots for me where I've landed <laughs> <laughs> is that in a way it's it's one of the things that we learn in the crusty scene in the book because that is, that is what we learn like that is part of what we learn in the crusty scene is how far Percy will go to protect his friends and that it can be violent and it can be scary when he does that and I mm-hmm. think that This scene has a similar effect. That's where I've landed with how Percy perceives himself, at least when he's making these threats. Because this was a threat. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. And and to come full circle a little bit, you pointed out also in the first episode that, like, it does seem like he is a very naturally talented fighter. So he's sort of also using that natural talent as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Even though it, it goes slightly against that whole theory because we learned that he did learn how to fight from Luke. We know that he still had, you know, like, it. especially if we're going based on book Percy, we know he knew how to fight before any of this. He was getting into fights yeah. on the regular.
3: <laughs> yeah, like, watching him in the flashback sequences, I do feel like, like, this kid does have a natural ability to know what to do. Like, he is improvising. He's being scrappy. Like, mm-hmm. he's got... He's definitely not green. He, like, definitely has a good instinct and a good, like, sense of what to do in those situations, which I think goes a long way.
2: So, Percy slices Ares's ankle while Ares is down after um, he's hit by the wave. It's actually... That specific moment is, like, strikingly similar to the sentences from the book mm. with, like, Ares is down, Percy uses it as a distraction and, like, comes around as if he's going to hit him in the head, but then goes down for his leg and all that. And then Ares, rather than laying a very specific curse on him, just tells him that he's got an enemy for life. Which is good,
3: because that specific curse never fucking happens. <laughs>
2: <life>. <laughs> it happens just, like, in that weird, that weird way that sometimes things, things that Ares says happen. <laughs> anyway. He reveals his true form. As he disappears, they all turn away. And he leaves behind the Helm of Darkness.
3: Which is a very cool. If I were stealing a prop from this set, mm-hmm. I would steal
2: that one, yeah, personally. Yeah, it's a cool one.
3: Because what I actually wrote down, it's very Cthulhu-chic. Because <laughs> the design is very much more, to me, fantasy than anything um, specific uh, to a specific time period. Very cool, though. The shape is reminiscent of a Greek helmet But the eyes and the netting over it kind of reminds me of a marmulon gladiator netting situation. The fact that there's no mouth is interesting to me or no nose. It's very... This is not a functional piece at all. Like, this is not just a repurposed helmet, which I find very interesting. Hmm. I'm curious what the design inspo was there. I mean, it looks sick. Also, we see the exterior of the Montauk house in daylight. It's blue.
2: (laughs) I am so struck constantly by how much the cabin looks like a temple. That's still that's mm. still one of my favorite design choices that they've made, especially now that we've established temples as sanctuary. But yeah, speaking of, uh, a light comes on in the cabin. They hear a voice whispering Percy's name. And then out walks Electo. And she's here to get the Helm of Darkness.
3: I did find the line uh, when he says to her, this has been your quest all along. We love that we love we love continuing the theme of humanizing monsters and again i think like we talked a lot about this in trials of apollo and how like a lot of these monsters are just workaday people doing just doing their stuff going about their daily lives just like Half-Bloods. so she takes the hum she leaves wishing him good luck and then he and annabeth and grover get into an argument because he wants to go up to olympus to stop the war and they're like don't do that zeus will kill you I did love the line, though, where Percy's like, no, this is how I make him listen. And I was like, is this, this has to be an echo. Does someone, does Luke say something about wanting the gods, to make the gods listen?
2: Um, make the gods listen, maybe not. But I was thinking a lot about his lines about glory at this point. Specifically because of Percy's line at the end where he steals Luke's line (laughs) from the lightning Uh thief. When Grover jokes that, like, just for clarity... How sure are you that this couldn't just be an email? Which is a great point considering they know they can ship things to Olympus now. They've done it in the past. They basically could have just put this in an email. But this is when Percy, full of lines made to make Phoebe gasp, goes, where's the glory in that? Which is stealing... The gist of Luke's where's the glory in doing what others have done. But anyway, glory as Luke defines it in episode two is, it's like this stuff that attaches itself to your name, makes it bigger, scarier, more important. People listen closer when you talk. They work harder to be your friend and they think twice about messing with you. And I think that that, like the physical powers of glory is what Percy is going for because I when I heard that line from Percy I was like hey hang on a second <laughs> <laughs> I was like what exactly does Percy want out of glory versus what does Luke want out of glory and how much does Percy want glory really like it was it just it was a line that I got focused on but I figured that like glory as in living forever establishing yourself and ensuring that you're remembered and you have a legacy that side of glory that I think Luke wants Percy doesn't at least as i interpret luke because we haven't really seen this luke fully like in action yet but like in book luke like wants to make an impact he's been ignored and given a a sort of forgettable quest and he wants to like we've talked plenty about he wants to force the gods and especially hermes to look at him now and look at him for forever but Mm -hmm. we saw this season that that side of glory was sort of ultimately useless to percy because he didn't actually have anything he wanted from his dad so luke's Cleo's definition for episode two it feels like the glory definition that percy is thinking of right now when he says that line because Mm -hmm. he needs he needs zeus to listen to him right now so he needs all the glory he can get
3: (laughs) yeah it's interesting though because i feel like walker's line delivery he wasn't 100 percent serious when he said that I think that supports your point, though, where I think, like, he doesn't take glory that seriously, but he's using that as, like, you know, he's being, he's taking the rules of this world and using them to his advantage, where it's yeah. like, oh, you're gonna push back, but what is, no, I'm gonna push right back with the rules of this world on you, which I don't fully ascribe to, but, like, this, they benefit me this time, so I'm gonna use them.
2: hmm Um, before they talk about the glory thing, though, we have that line where Annabeth, while trying to convince him not to go says he'll kill you you understand that right either because he still thinks you stole the bolt or because you're a forbidden kid Zeus will never let you leave olympus alive and percy says i'm done running from monsters
3: out that gate the,
2: out that gate <laughs> the hallelujah chorus started playing in my head <laughs> <laughs> having percy call zeus a monster is like the perfect way to round out that theme in this season i mean we will we'll probably get deeper into this when we get to like the actual Zeus scene. But I feel like all Trials of Apollo enjoyers cheered. (laughs) Mm
3: -hmm. All five of you.
2: All five of us. (laughs) And growing?
3: I don't know why I counted myself out of that group. I enjoy Trials of Apollo.
2: But yeah, I mean, just referring to I don't think we've referred to any of the gods as monsters quite yet. We've done the sort of, like, are you are the heroes monsters? Was Perseus the hero in this story? That kind of thing. But we haven't explicitly called any of the gods monsters. So I love that there aren't lines being drawn here. That the gods can very much, can very much be monsters, and often are. <laughs> so, uh, Percy heads to Olympus.
3: Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this scene with him and the guard is the most book Percy scene. Am I wrong? He walks up. The guy's like, you can't go up there. He pulls out the bolt and just goes, I don't have an appointment. I was just getting strong book Percy vibes. I don't know. Mm.
2: I was really hoping for a glimpse at the book that the guy was reading.
3: I know. I was like, what we book love do you have bit. back there? <laughs> and why is it Tristan Strong punches a hole in the sky?
2: Why is it Dante's Inferno?
3: <laughs> okay, that would have been pretty good. And that's in the public domain. <laughs> why is it Magnus Chase? wait (laughs) wait a
2: second (laughs) um he heads up to olympus we get a glimpse of the elevator doors from the yeah outside what is on those other floors (laughs) where else does this elevator stop just phoebe
3: i don't know can i can i tell you why i was staring at this for like 10 minutes trying to figure out what this because those are greek letters okay yes i know them they don't spell anything i checked it's alpha which is the first letter in the greek alphabet and then the second one skips to the 17th letter it skips 16 letters phoebe and then it goes in order from there no skips rho sigma tau upsilon, phi chi there's two letters after that in the greek alphabet there's no psi and omega why (laughs) (laughs) i was expecting the last letter to at least be omega where is beta, gamma, delta, <laughs> epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, iota? Where are they? They're
2: inside the Empire State Building. <laughs> right. So alpha is the bottom floor, and then the, all of those are various levels within the Empire State Building. And then we why get... is Olympus
3: Kai? <laughs> why isn't it Omega? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, Olympus does not start with Omega. It starts with Omicron, the other O, mm-hmm. and then it skips to rho. Why did I skip to row?
2: I don't know. I don't know why there are even other floors you can go to. (laughs) (laughs) That's my question. I'm not worried about the letters. I'm worried about the fact that there are other floors you can be going to.
3: Okay, but I have a theory. Mm -hmm. So when Percy walks out to Olympus, um, what I found really striking, now, to be fair, I think this does pretty well match the description of the book. Sort of. But this particular version of Olympus, I think, to me, looks a lot like, like Constantinople at the height of the Roman Empire. The height of the Byzantine Empire, actually, not the Roman. This doesn't look like a Greek city or even a Roman city. It looks like, I mean, it looks like Constantinople. There's just, like, stuff everywhere. There's this huge poem, some guy, I forget I forget the author, but someone runs for a poem about Constantinople that's just called The Buildings. That's just literally an epic poem about all of the buildings you will encounter as you're walking through the city and, like, the main city. So I was thinking a lot about how Olympus, when Percy first walks out, looks like that, which would have sort of been, like, the last height of the original, like, Greco-Roman empires where the gods were still being worshipped as gods that are, like, the main gods in the societies. And then when Percy walks up to the throne room, was also very striking to me first of all the soundscaping it sounds like they're on the top of a mountain and if you look around everything looks ancient and everything looks pretty bare bones and it's not like these fabulous gorgeous citadels and dome tops that we see it's like open air like this is a sanctuary at the top of a mountain that was made in super ancient times which made me think like oh it's like every version of olympus almost like stacked upon the next so we start with the top of mount olympus the mountain you know which is a real mountain and then you know you stack down to like a layer of classical greece and then you stack down to like rome then you stack down to the byzantines that you see and then you keep stacking down until you get to the lobby of the empire state building which is also incidentally made of marble that's what the other floors are in my head
2: hmm then why? Does it make
3: sense? Why, no.
2: Why wouldn't the, the top floor take Percy all the way to the top of it then? <laughs> Shh. <laughs> That's
3: my theory and I'm sticking with it.
2: Anyway, so Percy walks into Olympus. <laughs> <laughs> he walks into Constantinople. Um, And as he does, he finds himself thinking back on another flashback. At least I assume he's thinking back on it and it's just, not just a... A flashback for our sake.
3: I think the what supports the fact that Percy's thinking about this moment as he's walking into Olympus is the last thing Luke says before yeah the memory closes out.
2: Because Luke says you're learning fast, but you have to be really careful with this. Uh, he says, Annabeth is terrified of spiders, but she's a lot bigger than they are. So what do you think happens when she comes across one? Two things you never want to be are small and scary at the same time. Things that are small and scary get squished. And so... I wondered if walking into this, he was thinking to himself that he has to make himself as non-threatening as possible. Does a bad job of it, but <laughs> <laughs> but I wondered if yeah. he was walking in there thinking, okay, the gods might be scared of him and that that's why they, they probably get rid of forbidden kids is because they're scared of them.
3: Yeah. It was interesting because this is where I wrote down the note I had before. Percy not picking Luke for the quest um, made a lot of sense to me from what we'd seen but now that we've seen that like Luke is tutoring Percy in the forest I want to rewatch the choosing ceremony episode two like the choosing ceremony and the scene where he gives him the sneakers again because I think they have a lot more they have a much deeper relationship
2: yeah the fact that they've had conversations like this where it's them talking very frankly about the gods and like the idea of fighting them of turning their own rules against them that kind of thing I'm like I want to hear way more of these conversations <laughs> two flashbacks was not enough but I need more
3: <laughs> do you think they were the same flashback
2: I think these are the same conversation I think this went yeah. from they were sparring before and then this is like when they took a break after sparring so I need the next day And the next day after that, and I need the day when Percy, you know, comes up and, and asks, realizes, I've never asked you your backstory, actually. (laughs) Tell me about your tragic backstory. And Luke says, absolutely not. I am,
3: (laughs) I am just waiting. I'm waiting. I don't know when it's going to happen. Maybe it's Battle of the Labyrinth. Maybe it's Titan's Curse. Actually, no, I think it might, it must be Sea of Monsters. I want my series of Luke flashbacks with his quest. I want it.
2: Hmm. I could see that in Titan's Curse, because that's, like, when it's relevant.
3: Oh, right, with the Garden of the Hesperides. (gasps) You're right. You're right. It's Titan's Curse. Because he's going to fail the quest, and then he's going to fail it again, but different this time. No glory for him. Yep. Yo. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway. It's so interesting to me, the way Olympus is. Just, like, these old, ancient, like, carved from the, you know, Mm -hmm. Earth- did you notice that there's, like, veins of, I think, celestial bronze in the background, like, kind of lined through a lot of the ruins? And I was trying to decide if they were, like, repairs or if they were, like... Because they mentioned that they mine celestial bronze from I was Olympus about at to some say, point in the yeah. books. I also love that there's a fire not in the middle, but, like, with the other throne. So I was like, oh, like, Hestia, she gets her little moment.
2: I know, and I saw the hearth, I was like, ooh, that'll be important yeah. in five seasons <laughs> so.
3: <laughs> oh sorry one more thing i did want to make a I no- i did make a note though that the thrones look as old as the ruins and ca- around camp half-blood which i know is probably just because they made them all look as old as they could but i'm gonna choose to make it a point in my analysis that the top of olympus and the ruins around camp half-blood are from the same time period a lot of the thrones themselves do look Roman because the thing with ancient the ancient Greeks is they were kind of like yeah if you sit on the grass that's comfortable enough for your spectator seating for sports versus Romans were like no 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 no, we have to cover everything in marble and like have these elaborately stone carved seats and all this stuff so a lot of the ones you see in museums are Roman but they do look
2: sufficiently old mm-hmm. but sitting in his throne um very powerfully (laughs) is zeus as if he was waiting for him he knew he was coming and he just he sat down i was like aren't you at war or something go get up and like gather (laughs) some forces or something
3: (laughs) did you write down his first line
2: i didn't it's just you failed I think the reason I didn't write down his first line is that the, like, silent conversation he and Percy were having was just so intense (laughs) before they even spoke a word. Like, Lance Reddick and, like, like Toby Stevens' last episode, both of them, they carry, like, a weight, like we said. Um, Like, this moment just felt so heavy, even without them saying anything, with Percy walking up and, like, holding the bolt out to him with his head bowed.
3: Yeah, the performance here is... Amazing. Like, you can immediately, you're like, that's a god. Yep, mm-hmm. he's god. He's a god. He's the most powerful god. I believe it.
2: But as soon as Zeus takes his bolt back, Percy lifts his head and starts explaining to him that Kronos is back. That he didn't steal the bolt, that it was Kronos.
3: And Zeus's response is interesting, because he's basically like, okay, sure, like, everyone's always plotting and planning.
2: Yeah, he says, I know who Kronos is. I am his son. That is what we do. We snap and plot and strive. It was only a matter of time before he did again.
3: And then Percy, who has been a, done a very good job of not being scary, <laughs> kind of throws all that away. Yep.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he basically, he explains to Zeus, he says, Cronus wants you to fight my father. Because Zeus is trying to continue the war. He says, he wants you both weakened. And Zeus says, I will not be weakened by my brothers. And Percy says, you already are. Your family is a mess. (laughs) They don't support (laughs) you because they love you. They obey because they're afraid. Ares, your son, he turned on you the moment someone stronger showed up. Do you really think he'll be the last? How afraid of you do you think they'll be when your dad shows up looking to put you back in your place? And I was screaming throughout this entire <laughs> I'm like I'm I'm still kicking my feet over this moment
3: my favorite part though is Percy does all of that and then Zeus goes to fucking smite him and he just goes wait
2: I know I was like what did you think was gonna happen <laughs> anyone who listened to our Trials of Apollo episode knows how much this moment it was like a was a moment like the mm-hmm. the line that Uh, Ashley read. I went back and checked it. Um, I can't wait for Ashley to watch this scene, but in our Tower of Nero episode, there's a line that Apollo has where he says, As much as we pretended to be a council of twelve, in truth we were a tyranny. Zeus was less a benevolent father and more an iron-fisted leader with the biggest weapons and the ability to strip us of our immortality if we offended him. And that was like, this was like the the culmination of these fifteen books was Apollo standing in the throne room looking at Zeus and Basically thinking the things that are going that are that are coming out of Percy's mouth right now, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) not wanting to say any of them because he knew that it wouldn't change anything. And so I am just looking at at what's happening right now on my screen and thinking like you you do this. You call Zeus a monster at the end of your first season and you have Percy say these lines at the end of your first season. And then the question again becomes, okay, what are you going to do about that? Like, you have a monster, a tyrant in control, and not only that, but he is just like the rest of his family. Like, Ares is his father's son. Zeus is his father's son. So what is your way out of this? Like, Luke has an idea. What's yours? (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Which is just a a fascinating way to set up your TV show. (laughs) But to me, I just, watching this scene, I was thinking a lot about how, like, this episode overall, to me, felt like, like so much of the verse felt like it was really about the like father and son dynamics the generations Mm. and like the damage that one can do to the next but also like the support that one can give to the next Mm. and I just felt all of that within the throne room framed on one side of it by Ares turning on his father and then framed on the other Mm. side of it with Luke turning on his father
3: Mm. but then also in the middle. We get Zeus going to smite Percy and Poseidon appearing to spare, to save him.
2: Yeah, that's why I'm saying in the middle of all of this is the throne room scene, <laughs> which just feels like the center of it.
3: I love his word thing because he says, I surrender, take your victory, but spare my son.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's just this complete surrendering of glory and like the idea of winning and victory and all of this stuff that creates these toxic dynamics, at least some of them in favor of being a good father which to be fair sparing your child is the bare minimum
2: <laughs> saving your child from being struck by lightning <laughs> is a pretty good move generally
3: it's good it's good he did it mm-hmm. but let's not give him a father of the year award just yet
2: <laughs> but it is like it it is definitely a big move for him within this family to give up the war yes. like
3: that and give it up for family specifically, Mm -hmm. not as a power struggle, not as a play, you know, actually standing up for your child, actually fighting for your child at all costs, which is being a good parent.
2: Yeah. Poseidon's here, my friend.
3: (laughs) Get to hear Toby Stevens speak ancient Greek. Uh,
2: Yeah. (laughs) So what's up with that?
3: (laughs) I was so upset because, so for my screeners, for whatever reason, don't get subtitles on them. So I was sitting here like, wild that they just have ancient Greek. You don't need to know exactly what they're saying, so I'll figure it out, and it'll be great. And then I found out, um, no, they do translate it. So all of the work I'd put in uh, was for nothing.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of sad that it is translated. Like when you said that you weren't getting translations, I was like, oh, that's the way that it is in a book. I wish they didn't translate this for me, <laughs> so that I could just sit there and be like, all I caught was the word father with Percy. (laughs) Especially though, I mean, I assume that you're going to say what they're, what they say here.
3: Oh yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: But the information that we get here, all of it we already had except Except for for one one word. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so I was like, you know, I understand translating it specifically so that we get that one word, if that is the purpose for translating it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, because the translation is, um, who else knows about father? And it's Ares, Hades, Hermes. Mm -hmm. And this is where we circle back to the fact that I still did try to figure out what they were saying. Keep in mind that I, I, the last time I studied ancient Greek in a formal setting was six years ago. And it is, it is a delight and also a challenge. So I'm not 100% positive, but... I do believe that the word specifically Poseidon uses in Greek, he does not use a common word to know, which is usually like nosto. Instead, he uses, I think, "psilau,, instead of which is not the verb to know exactly, but it is the verb to uncover. So who hmm. else has uncovered what's going on with father? Hermes, but I think going off of all of our conjecturing about what he's doing at the Lotus Casino and specifically how he's interacting with these kids. The way his performance was, the way he was acting around them, I felt like there was something going on there where he also had an idea of what was going on. And so this intrigues me a lot.
2: Yeah, I I guess I'm 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 both curious what Hermes knows, but also why Zeus knows that Hermes knows. Like, I, does he just assume because he's the messenger god that he must know these things? <laughs> but it seems it seems certain that Hermes knows about this. And if Hermes knows about this, I feel like that is a point toward he knows what's going on with Luke right now.
3: <laughs> My next note is this acting from Toby.
2: Yeah, we're about to get to that. Before Zeus disappears, though, he says that he they're going to have Athena call everyone together. They'll declare his swift and crushing victory, which reminded me of Grover's line from episode five, the like, there's something cool about a, uh, what does he say?
3: Oh, there's something about overwhelming force and a quick surrender.
2: Yes. I was like that. Yep. Foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) There is something cool about it. I'm enjoying this scene. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. And as Zeus leaves, he says, make sure I never see this one again. And I was like, he will be bothering you for a while, oh, unfortunately. He will be. <laughs> <laughs> but then Poseidon is left alone with Percy for the first time. And again, this was one of those moments where I was sort of jolted back to the reality of what I was watching because for the first time in a long time, we get line for line dialogue from the book mm. with Poseidon saying, obedience doesn't come naturally to you, does it? And Percy saying, no, dot, 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 sir. (laughs) And Poseidon saying, I must take some of the blame, I suppose. The sea does not like to be restrained. Great lines to leave in. You know, of all of the lines to say, we're going to keep these in the show. Of all of the, like, two moments where they were like, let's keep these lines Mm -hmm. from the book. I'm glad this was one of them. (laughs) And then we get this exchange where... Percy says can I ask you a question Poseidon immediately assumes that he's going to ask about bringing Sally back but instead Percy says do you dream Ares says gods don't dream and Poseidon says Ares is a moron perhaps you noticed <laughs> of course we dream why do you ask and he says do you ever dream about mom and here comes Toby Stevens face acting <laughs> He
3: goes through like three different emotions.
2: I know. I was like, the pride in his son is there. The regret is there. Like, it's just, I see it all. (laughs) And it's all in like split second little micro expressions. That's what
3: I wrote down the acting note. (laughs) I'm just like, how do I see all of that on your face without you (laughs) saying anything? He's insane. Just like agony, love, longing, regret, Mm -hmm. pride. Distinctly though. you know
2: yeah it wasn't like all at once it was like within milliseconds you caught each of those
3: i don't know how he does that that's insane
2: he's so powerful yeah
3: and then he gives him a pearl
2: yes he pulls out the pearl and then walker starts doing it too walker starts doing the face acting too (laughs) you see him realize that their time together is about to be cut short i was like oh no never put these two together on my screen again (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're going to make Phoebe cry. So the pearl sends Percy back to camp half-blood. Um, he, I love that he sees Thalia's tree and then he knows he's home. Because we also had, like, earlier in um, the conversation with Poseidon, we had that one line that Poseidon had a- about Thalia being a hero who, like, still inspired demigods um, when he was talking to Zeus. And then seeing the one who made it and then the one who yeah. didn't on the other side of the shot and these two as... Because I think these two are also paralleled a little bit later at the end of the episode. And I was just keeping my eye on a lot of the, like, little Thalia stuff that was in this episode. Because, like, knowing season two. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I found it fitting to have Percy wake up and see Thalia and then just having them as these two different versions of the story. But he walks into camp. He's a hero. People are cheering for him.
3: They, at first, it's like... Not focused on the people cheering, and you don't hear them either. So I thought that was an interesting way to convey that, like, it's not about the glory necessarily for Percy. Mm. And he immediately gets ushered into the Hermes cabin with Luke and Annabeth, who seem to be in cahoots. Seem to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because here's watching this scene, I had a, two different thoughts. The first is I was thinking back to in episode six. That line that indicated to me that Luke has a lot of influence over Annabeth to the point that she's afraid of him, like, talking her out of things. So it made me wonder if that was what was going on here. Like, it seems like she got back to camp first and Luke kind of got to her and was like, oh, I didn't do this, but here's why. And, like, she doesn't question him. Yeah. Possibility number two is she suspects him and is baiting a trap with Percy, which she has done before in these very woods. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I don't know which one. I feel like she believes in Luke. I think she thinks he's doing the right thing. Because I think at the end of this part, we see the shift. But it could be a capture the flag parallel. It could be a capture the flag parallel.
2: I'm not sure. I think that that is what it is. Okay. You know, because, okay, so this this scene ends. <laughs> Percy and, well, actually, there's it seems like there's some kind of time skip. Because we go from, like, daytime to I know. When did it turn to night? But Percy and Luke go out into the woods to meet with Kyron, and then Annabeth apparently follows them out there, and so she Mm. must, in this scene, know something is up, unless she figured it out between daytime and nighttime during the (laughs) during the commercial break.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's possible. Like, there's something fishy where she's like, why aren't why can't I be part of this meeting?
2: But she's the one who volunteered. She's the one who volunteered to stay back and keep an eye on Clarice, which is why mm. I figured that she, this is part of her plan. Yeah, okay, yeah. Is that she was like, I'm gonna stay back, I promise. But really, she's gonna follow them out into the woods. Because I think also, it seems like Percy is coming to this idea also around the same time. I'm trying to figure out exactly when Percy figures it out and when Annabeth figures it out. I felt like Percy figured it out in the scene. You think while he was talking to him?
3: Yeah, like, I feel like it's it's possible that, like, the the pieces were starting to come together, but I think it's when he's like, and then this part of the prophecy, you'll be betrayed by the one who calls you friend. And that's when it all clicks into place for him. Like, like, I think, at the very least, he didn't have everything figured out. Like, he
2: might have had a clue that it was Luke. This is what I was debating was, like, whether he figured it out during that scene while talking to him or if that was why he was so quiet walking out there like quiet enough that Luke comments on it was because he was like slowly putting things together and then Mm. while he's talking to Luke he's like kind of piecing it all together out loud and as he says it it like confirms for him that it's true like Mm. the things that have been going on in his mind because he comes at him with like a list of like the shoes almost dragged us into Tartarus and that's where Kronos. you know like it seems like he's this is like the line of logic that he's been following and that he's Mm. trying to I would agree with that because that was how I read it, was that, like, as they walked out, he was piecing all of this together.
3: And I think Annabeth's at least a step or two ahead, where I think...
2: Right, because she knew to follow them out into the woods. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this changes things for Annabeth, because then that means that Annabeth doubted Luke on her own. Mm-hmm. Like, the the blind faith. It's not gone, but yeah. it's it's not it's not just because someone, like, forced her to... to wake up. It was because she figured it out herself. It's the kind of thing where it's like, I, we've gotten, I think I mentioned the fact that we've gotten a lot of the Annabeth-Luke relationship, basically all of the that we've gotten has been from Luke's perspective, but we haven't gotten a lot of Annabeth talking about Luke outside of, um, that one moment when she talks about, like, when they ran away, but even that was her talking about Thalia more than she was talking about Luke. But I'm just very curious about their relationship and what's going through Annabeth's mind in this whole episode and this moment. (laughs) And the thing is, like, she doesn't have the evidence that I would expect her to use. Like, she wasn't there for the the shoes.
3: Well, but she knows that Kronos is the big bad. She knows that a demigod would have had to have stolen it. She knows that they told Luke Clarice was the culprit.
2: That Luke did nothing with that. And then she has to think... See, this also, I feel like this could also be answered by whether or not there really was war about to break out inside camp. Because we were talking about, like, how mm. Luke, we didn't know whether he was lying or not um, when mm. he said that. And if Annabeth gets to camp and realizes that, like, things seem strangely calm, and, like, Luke is sitting there That's saying, true. like, there's tension, you don't you don't realize it, but these two cabins almost fought yesterday, you don't even know, you know, like if that's, she got that's to a camp good point. and there was no war.
3: No, I like that. I like that. It's like ping one, Luke lied about that. Why'd he lie about Why would that? he lie ping about that? Two,
2: why would he not tell anyone?
3: Everyone seems very cool with Clarice. This seem, it seems like nobody... Yeah. You know what? Here's an interpretation I like. We can have our cake and eat it too. She's figured out Luke's been lying, but she hasn't figured out why. Okay. She's baiting the trap to see if Luke gives a villain monologue to Percy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> She's like in my experience Luke loves to monologue about anything and everything so <laughs> let me just set him up with one.
3: I also think it's interesting to think about in light of I think something I've noticed I know I try I, I at least flagged with Annabeth where I feel like she always has a good she has her finger on the pulse of what people want.
2: Mm. and then she gets home and can't quite figure out what Luke's yeah, deal is
3: on, yeah. What does he want? Why is he doing this? Mm-hmm. So
2: really, what I I just need to see how they handle the annabeth and Luke dynamic going forward. Yeah, which I guess well we can talk about it um, when she shows up in the forest. I guess
3: can we talk about this lamp?
2: Yeah, it's a good lamp. It's a it's a familiar lamp in <laughs> in some ways.
3: <laughs> Luke's leading Percy out of the darkness of the lamp. I'm like Luke, honey. You're not he was being like, I thought funnel. it was really...
2: It looked really cool when Kronos was doing it. <laughs> uh, I'm surprised you didn't, like, find a, some weird cloak to put on also. <laughs> I know. And whoever decided to have this scene take place under fireworks... Genius.
3: So, I know you want to talk about every fucking line in this scene. I do. <laughs> so let's start with the first one, because I bolded this one. Where they're walking, they see the fireworks, and Luke goes, hum, Talk about a celebration. They really pulled out all the stops for you. hmm I flagged that one. I think it's really interesting that this whole scene is playing out under this huge celebration of Percy's glory.
2: Yeah. Like,
3: this was the thing Luke introduced to him at the beginning. Like, this is what you have to get. And, like, Percy's, like, he's gotten it. And now he's back with Luke. So, we're, like, we're seeing this huge evidence of celebration, but also, like, Percy's not there. He's not getting it. He mm-hmm. said he's in the woods with Luke. <laughs> But I was also thinking, like, especially all the ways the lighting was like playing against like Luke's scar, like that's I feel like a big piece of this conversation is the backstory we haven't yet we know we are going to get about Luke, but we haven't yet, which is a bad way to analyze it, but also the only way I can really think about analyzing it.
2: Yes. That's the way I was gonna go with it too.
3: <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's like interesting, like without even getting the story of the failed quest or not the failed quest but the story of the quest that he resented, that he didn't like that didn't give him the glory he wanted we are still like getting that from him like we're getting this sense of like he's this guy who is the best swordsman at camp he cares so much about glory but he hasn't gotten it he hasn't gotten it through this system
2: um the thought the thought I'm having is a disagreement but mostly because it's something I'm realizing that we never talked about which was that Mm -hmm. Luke introduces himself as someone who does have glory and that's why people listen to him and like that's how he introduces Mm -hmm. the concept in episode two is that like that's why people listen to me they respect me because I have glory Mm. and I'd assume that that comes from your big quest from Once Upon a Time but I feel like in the book like this speech in the book when he brings up glory we talked about how The type of glory that he got from his quest and that exists at camp wasn't enough for him Mm -hmm. because it it was you know where's the glory in doing what others have done and like he also has the the line in this scene where he says like this is our way out of camp and their control and all that like clearly life inside of camp is not enough for Luke still he needs that that bigger you know basically what he what he needs is like to save the world he needs to save I was about to say he needs the type of glory that unfortunately Percy kind of just got.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and I I think that's sort of what I was slowly meandering my way to say. (laughs) Because that's what I meant when I said he didn't really have glory, I think. It's like, he didn't have... What I was trying to say is he doesn't have what Percy has. Yeah. This kid that just showed up and learned what this was, like, five minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Who's 12 and this tall. Like...
2: Yeah, although I, I, I don't think, at least yet, I don't think he resents Percy at all for that. I think because Percy comes back with that level of glory as a 12-year-old, he probably sees him as an even better recruit than he did before. And yeah. thinks like, you know, you come back with this amount of glory, look at what they're doing for you. Imagine what you'll be able to do when you can, when we leave camp and we do something even greater. You know, because in his head, he Percy is still the kid who he met in episode two. Who he was convinced mm-hmm. wanted glory more than anything <laughs> yeah
3: the kid who adored him who was like oh my god like yeah. You're... yeah
2: like that was something i was thinking a lot about was that like in luke's head percy is still the kid who left camp a couple days ago but we've seen percy over the course of this season realize things about the way that he feels toward the gods and toward his dad like we talked about with um the fate scene that that was like the major shift for us Mm-hmm. Withdrawing, like, pulling him away from Luke and from that trajectory. Luke doesn't know any of that. Mm. Luke, th- Luke still thinks this is the this is the kid who I trained how to fight so that he'd fight for me.
3: <laughs> mm. So Percy starts putting the pieces together. He, he runs through the prophecy line by line. And, like, every line, Luke has a response. He's like, yep. oh, yeah, okay, this makes sense, <laughs> this makes sense. And then Percy says, you will be betrayed by one who calls you friend. And Luke is silent. Mm-hmm. This man... <laughs> How do you know? Nothing.
2: No- Nothing prepared. <laughs> I was like it would be so easy for him to do what the book does, which is say like maybe it was also Aries. But it's cuz he knows. Like he knows that Percy's figured it out and he he Yeah. It's a completely different moment because He's trying to recruit him this time. Like, in the book, you yeah. wanted him dead. Like, this, he drew, yeah. he lured him out into the woods to kill him. And this time, yeah. he doesn't want to hurt him at all.
3: Like, that's the thing is, like, he says, I am your friend.
2: He says, none of this was meant to betray you. And
3: he means it. I even started to write down, how did he betray Percy, though, in this version? And then I remembered the shoes. And I was like, backspace, backspace, backspace. <laughs> <laughs> and I, he also says, I didn't think you'd give the shoes to Grover to wear.
2: That's such a, such a, the, the line delivery, a chilling line.
3: Because <laughs> it made, that also made me start to think about the family. Luke, Thalia, Grover, Annabeth. We're coming, I'm coming back to them though. Okay. And the shift in, and I think it's a music shift too, when he says, I'm here to recruit.
2: Whew. And this is, this is what I was talking about earlier with the idea that in teaching someone fight you are teaching them how to beat you specifically because every man fights Mm -hmm. differently according Mm to a name redacted from black sales (laughs) (laughs) and just that was what i was most like in love with basically (laughs) in this scene Mm -hmm. there are many things i was in love with in this scene but you know i am your friend none of this was meant to betray you and then later on i don't want to fight he went into this so like fully confident Mm -hmm. that percy would be leaving here with him like that that's kind of the that's at least if you if you take name redacted's word you don't teach someone how to kill you and then think that things might go wrong (laughs) right you can't give them that amount of power over you and so yeah listening to Luke's speech in this version and thinking that like in his head this wasn't going to fail and Percy was going to leave here with him and like he had confidence in that and like he gives him so many chances throughout this whole scene too. And during the fight, like there's even a part where he beats Percy. Yeah. There's a point where he he stops his sword arm and he holds his sword in a way like he could have he could have killed him in that moment or he could have hurt him in that moment. But instead, he yeah. just stops and says like You're getting better." Like
3: <laughs> this fight choreography man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really impressive too. Like I, these kids are doing moves that like are genuinely impressive to me.
2: That like slide that Percy does when he actually like gets the upper hand also, in the fight.
3: I don't know if you notice. It's like he. This is what I was talking about a little bit earlier. He's like pushing and shoving and like ducking. Like yeah. he's doing things that if you're a beginning sword fighter would not be in, Would not be moves you'd go for because you usually would try to just block everything with your sword. Like it's clear that like he comes from a scrappy background, and the sword's just sort of an added bonus situation. <laughs> Mm -hmm. we're getting ahead of ourselves though Luke starts monologuing
2: right we need to we need to dig into some of these lines from his monologue Uh, the first one at least that I have written down actually is before the monologue even really starts technically when Percy's talking about the prophecy he says but prophecies those things are so vague which I I went back to Luke's diary um to remind myself of where we landed on Luke's opinion on prophecies, because I think that's the only time we really talked about it. Because according to this line from Luke, it sounds like he doesn't have too much faith in prophecies because they're so unpredictable and they can mean anything. Mm. In Luke's diary, or at least when we talked about Luke's diary, we weren't totally sure of how Luke felt about prophecies because we know that he got one from Hal um, mm-hmm. about Thalia and about himself. And there's a lot of sort of mixed messaging going on where it's like Hal. Is someone who teaches him that a prophecy can be avoided because he stopped this girl's fate from happening which like you'd you'd think wouldn't be possible with the knife with With the the knife knife, you gotta bring up the knife of course (laughs) but then at the same time like he gave this prophecy about Thalia which Luke had to watch come true and that he couldn't stop from happening and then he also Mm -hmm. gave Luke the prophecy that like your choices are going to change the world and we were talking about how that could have empowered Luke to go and basically fulfill that prophecy because he knows that his choices will actually make a difference. And then I was like, I, when I remembered that that was kind of the conversation that we had, I was thinking about how, like, we know that choice and prophecy can coexist. But if you kind of hate the gods and any influence they have over you, you might not agree with that. And you might think that, like, no, I need, you know, my free will. And mm-hmm. it can't coexist with a prophecy, so I don't put any faith in prophecies. I guess what I'm saying is that... If, if this version of Luke even had that experience that happens in Luke's diary, that he came out of that situation thinking prophecies are changeable. Hal did it. Why can't I? Yeah. Nothing that, that you're told by an oracle necessarily needs to happen. They're so vague. You never know what it's going to mm-hmm. mean. It's, it really isn't. It's nothing. Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting point of view for him to have, considering that his mom was, like, saying prophecies at him his whole pro- childhood. Yeah. Luke's relationship with prophecy and fate is very messy, and I'm, I just want to dig into it, not right now, necessarily, because we know yeah. very little, but I mean, like, throughout this show, that that is something that I want to know if he knows the great prophecy in the way that I want to know if Annabeth knows it, mm-hmm. because we kind of go back and forth on that point in the books.
3: <laughs> I was thinking, too, that Annabeth's perspective on prophecy sounds a lot like Luke's. hmm So... I'm curious how this all plays in.
2: You know what I'm curious about is what Luke's prophecy was when he went on his quest.
3: And I how know. that came
2: together for did him. Did he
3: see his mom give it?
2: Ah. Like in the mist. He probably did. That's a terrible thought, actually. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yes, he pulls a backbiter, slightly curved. I did not look up what kind of sword this was. Unbelievable. What was this exact line? He was like, I want to show you something. He's so, like, earnest with it. He's like, check. I wanted to show you this.
2: I know. That's what. Oh, my God. Charlie. This is this is what I mean, is that he goes into this so earnestly and like he really believes that they're getting out of this in a good place. Come here, Percy. Let's check out my cool sword. (laughs) Yeah.
3: He also he draws an H with it. I know. (laughs) I was like, that's so interesting because I was sitting here and I was like, why didn't he draw a triangle? Why didn't he draw a delta?
2: A delta would have been crazy if he had...
3: (laughs) That would have been sick. I like that this opens up the potential for him to have had a gift from his father at some point that he's like, like, maybe this was a magic sword he got from Hermes that he's now turned into that.
2: Well, I mean, if we're going to go that route, we can again bring it back to using the tools of the people you're trying to defeat in order to defeat Mm -hmm. them which just it it never works in luke's case
3: (laughs) there's a line i also flagged well i
2: i feel like
3: i don't know if you have ones you want to talk about before but the line i bolded was him saying we can stay on the rung as long as it takes
2: that's what i was about to say i was like is it um (laughs) i just i feel like luke's solution is so often just to run away yeah, like he ran hey. away from home. Hey, do
3: we know anyone else like this?
2: Uh, <laughs> he ran away from home. He he does this now, and then when he gets in too deep, he goes to Annabeth and asks again to run away. Yeah, maybe it's that. Maybe it's that he's just kind of. Eh, I just had a sad thought because I feel like Luke. We once upon a time talked about Luke as someone who's like looking for connection. Oh, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> we once oh, talked no. about him as someone who was looking for connection and he would find it in places and then he would lose it or he you know he was just always yearning to have more people around him um mm-hmm. and that we found that specifically in his diary when he talks about like trying to befriend mortals but feeling like they can't understand him and then he finally mm-hmm. finds like Thalia and he feels like he has to hold on to her for dear life because she's the only person who has ever understood him in his entire life and I'm now thinking about the times that he's run and him every time kind of looking for he's just he's constantly looking for something and he's never finding it like that is Mm. just kind of a a staple of Luke's life is that he he runs because he thinks if I run I'll find something new I'll find something better when I run and then Mm. he makes it there and he's like this isn't what I wanted and then he runs again. (laughs) And it just over and over. That is all that Luke ever does. And this is only vaguely connected to what I said about connections earlier. But I feel like he he makes it to these places and he'll make those connections and use them as like a reason to stay or a reason to stay on the run or like he -hmm. tries to take those connections with him while he runs and that never works. That never works out well. Then the reason I said that it was getting sadder in my head was that I remembered the elements of the show that are leaning into Luke as someone who puts a lot of faith in like the community Mm. and his fellow demigods like he'll say later in the scene we is the word that Zeus fears the most (laughs) like he's
3: trying to build a community and it's interesting because I came to what I felt like when you started talking was a different conclusion from this line but the more you talked the more I was like "Hmm, maybe this this also works with it.
2: Because
3: when he said that I was thinking about how he likes to be on the run He likes to sort of be the renegade And he likes to have his people with him And it felt almost like he was maybe trying to recreate this family he had on the road originally Mm -hmm. By once again just like rejecting all of the sort of structures in place Where he hasn't thrived to find something better
2: Yeah, if Annabeth can see the parallels between Percy and Thalia, then I'm sure Luke can too.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and I'm also thinking, like, I feel like Annabeth is also part of his plan. If he can travel back and forth this easily, he can definitely come back, like...
2: Yeah, and talk to Annabeth.
3: And, like, she's shown, like, she believes him, she's devoted to him, so he's like, of course, yeah, she'll come too. And it's also interesting, because when he's saying, like, we can stay on the run as long as it takes... Like, that's also leading me to believe that there's no Princess Andromeda. There's no renegade group yet. There's no other camp, metaphorically, not literally. They didn't make another camp. He is sort of at the beginning of his journey with this.
2: Mm, He doesn't yet have his mysterious benefactors.
3: (laughs) Yeah, like, he's still a kid trying to just find a place for himself in the world. Like, he's not a master of mind villain yet.
2: Just to to bring it back to the stop saying we and then luke saying it's the word zeus fears the most
3: specifically zeus
2: specifically zeus
3: that kind of does segue into the next thing i'm going to talk about which is
2: is this the thing about western civilization because that is where my brain keeps trying to take me right now
3: (laughs) yeah because a huge piece of his speech that is not in this in the show that is in the books is how and i I think the actual quote is like western civilization is a disease like Mm -hmm. it's talking about this establishment that is created by greek gods And all of that trickling down is a huge problem. And we talked a lot about how that is reflective of our society, but not because Greek gods are running around, but just because, like, our myth of our quote-unquote civilization starts in ancient Greece. If you want to hear my full spiel on that, go listen to our first episode on The Lightning Thief. Yep. At first, I didn't know what to think about the lack of that part of Luke's motivation. But I think I've come around to a way where it does make sense to me. Because the, the lines he says when he's talking about Cronus are, he opened my eyes to the truth, the golden age. That's what he called it when he ruled. And this is the only line we really get that alludes to Luke's eventual plan beyond, like, we'll run away, we'll figure things out.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Like, his justification is like, Zeus doesn't want us to get together, they're bad parents. It, the, the, this power structure is broken. And then this is the the part of the speech where he's actually talking about the future. So to that end, I wanna come back to, this term golden age actually comes from an ancient Greek writer called Hesiod. And in one of his uh, works called Works and Days, he does tell the story of what he calls the five ages of man. So um, this is a pretty long passage, so I'm gonna skip around, but I'm gonna read out the lines that stuck out to me. And just to cite my source, it's the Hugh G. Evelyn White translation. First of all, the deathless gods who dwell on Olympus made a golden race of mortal men who lived in the time of Cronos, when he was reigning in heaven. They lived like gods without sorrow of heart, remote and free from toil and grief. Miserable age rested not on them, but with legs and arms never failing, they made merry with feasting beyond the reach of all evils. Uh, When they died, it was as though they were overcome with sleep, and they had all good things. For the fruitful earth unforced bear them fruit abundantly and without stint. They dwelt in ease and peace upon their lands, with many good things, rich in flocks, and loved by the blessed gods. First thing that really strikes me about this description of the Golden Age is the fact that if you're someone who loves glory, this is not what you want. Mm. But also, at the same time, you know, this is... You don't have to work. it Everything just comes to you. You can just be happy. The reason why it's called the Golden Age is most of the authors who wrote about this commented on it and viewed the Golden Age as a utopia. This was the time of perfection. Everything since has gotten progressively worse. And then he says, Would that I were not among the men of the fifth generation, but either had died before or been born afterwards. For now truly is a race of iron, and men never rest from labor and sorrow by day, and from perishing by night, and the gods shall lay sore trouble upon them. But notwithstanding, even these shall have some good mingled with their evils. And Zeus will destroy this race of mortal men also when they come to have gray hair on the temples at their birth. The father will not agree with his children, nor the children with their father, nor guest with his host, nor comrade with comrade, nor will brother be dear to brother as... That's a weird word. As aforetime? Mm. 1914. Men will dishonor their parents as they grow quickly old and will carpet them chiding them with bitter words hard-hearted they not knowing the fear of the gods they will not repay their aged parents the cost of their nurture for might shall be their right and one man will sack another's city there will be no favor for the man who keeps his oath or for the just or for the good but rather men will praise the evildoer and his violent dealing strength will be right and reverence will cease to be, and the wicked will hurt the worthy man, speaking false words against him, and will swear an oath upon them. This is a very bleak portrait of what is theoretically our current age still. There's some lines in here that I find to be really interesting thinking about in terms of Percy Jackson, right? The strength will be right. They will no longer fear the gods' envy and everything. Like All of this stuff feels very pertinent to this moment, In history, as told by Percy Jackson, right? This moment where the world was almost ended by a guy trying to bring back a golden age. But the thing with the golden age is it's the only one of these ages that I think cannot correspond with a particular period of history because it doesn't exist. It's a mythic past. You know, it's this theoretical utopia where the rules of the world don't need to make sense, where there's no work, only play, and there's no competition, there's no ugliness, there's no anything. And I think, to me, it's so interesting with Luke as an example because he is a character who, as I pointed out, nothing about what he wants corresponds to the golden age, and yet he looks back on it as a perfect time. And I think that's the danger of looking at the past this way because you only ever see what you want to see. You only ever see the good times. You can only ever regret what we've left behind, and I think this perfectly sums up why reverting doesn't work and why this is inherently flawed. Because you can't revert to a time when people weren't people.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is this is something I, I end up bringing up a lot when I talk about Luke and also the end of the series in general. Is that Luke relies on the ways of the past and then literally attempts to repeat what others have done. And so just ends up trapped in that cycle Mm -hmm. even more explicitly in the show because we've like clearly laid out what it means to be a member of this family and what traits they all share and the fact that Luke shares a lot of them and relies on a lot of them Mm -hmm. like Luke clinging to the past and looking only to the past while Percy in the end is able to find a way forward that is a something new is I think one of the like essential parts of this story but i also think when it comes to the the lack of glory and heroics in the golden age i actually think that might speak to what luke is really after here Mm. because looking at the golden age as a time when men lived like gods like they they didn't have to gather glory or become a hero to be just a little bit like the gods they were like the gods like i think more than anything luke wants to be a hero but it's because that's as close to being the gods as he'll ever get but like in an ideal world in the golden age that would never be the case you know like i think it's the the power dynamic it's the hierarchy that gives them all the power in the world while their children suffer and they do nothing that's broken and that loop once gone like it's that the gods should love their creations rather than putting themselves above them but i also i do want to hear him say more on this like about the golden age because he clearly does see more wrong in the world than just that their parents don't treat them as they should like because in bringing back the golden age that's not just i want our parents gone that's i'm trying to change the entire world here like there's something really broken that i'm trying mm. to fix and what i assume he has to say about it probably echoes a lot of what you just read like that the world has only gotten more corrupt since the gods took power from chronos you know like mm. look at the The way people live all over the world and look what they've done to the wild, too. Like, that's in that passage about the Golden Age, too, about how, like, bountiful it was. Mm. Like, he probably believes that once the gods were given the ability to control this world, even if they're not the only ones controlling it, technically, them having that power has ruined them all in the same way that, like, the Western civilization idea did. Yeah. But, like we said in our Lightning Thief episode, and, like, you just pointed out that that idea of the Golden Age can never be as utopic as it is in luke's mind and it likely never was that and is it's still with a member of this family like the patriarch of this family at the head of it the guy who gave rise to the gods in the first place who all of them are just like like Zeus says in the throne room yeah but luke doesn't realize that because he's fallen for that propaganda and Mm -hmm. for the idea that the past will always be better and that the only way to fix everything is to go backwards without realizing it will keep him trapped within this system and the cycle if he doesn't start looking forward and toward something new in the end.
3: Yeah. Then we get this incredible fight scene, but it's still not like it's a it's it's like a real fight, but it's not like a real real fight. Like this is not to the death.
2: No, like like I said Luke crucially is clearly not actually trying to hurt Percy throughout this fight.
3: And then this moment, who made who did this?
2: <laughs> it's so evil. It's
3: <laughs> Percy scores a hit on Luke, I think, or or it gets very close. There's a little midsection graze. And he's just like, "So, oh my god, I'm he's just like, "Sorry, I didn't mean to."
2: Mm-hmm. Just immediately stops and starts apologizing.
3: As though they're sparring, as though this is just practice.
2: Mm-hmm. And the the wildest part of this is when Luke whips around and cuts him down mid-sentence. I was yes. like, Dude, (laughs) it's such a moment because Luke has been trying so hard not to hurt him this entire time. Mm. And it's it's these two moments kind of back to back that push Luke over the edge. Like first, Percy saying, I met your dad. And that just like flips a switch. And then here, Percy hurts him and is apologizing, is sorry. And Luke just immediately has him on the ground. This had me thinking a lot about something that comes up a lot when people talk about Luke which is how many kids died because of him and that his whole war for the sake of demigods killed an extraordinary amount of demigods. (laughs) And I kept thinking about that because of Luke's attitude toward these people that he's supposed to be protecting and the things that he does to them. Like I'm thinking about Luke and Annabeth in like book three and just the switches that get flipped in Luke's mind where he goes from like this is someone I care deeply about that I need to take care of. And then he turns to, you know, the Luke that we see in sea of monsters. Who's like a you know, super villain. <laughs> yeah. I loved seeing that switch flip, like in real time of seeing, yeah. cause like this happens all the time where we're like, Oh, but Luke, clearly cares so much about Annabeth, but he's able to do these terrible things to her because there's a a point in his head where he thinks his cruelty is justified and it's a a line that is often very easy for him to cross over. Like this moment, it's a window into the way that Luke thinks where it's like, he's not a good guy, I think.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Guys, it it might be important to say this outright. Like we like him because he's interesting, not because he's good.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no I might have a, a picture of Luke in the back of my phone case but it's not because I think he's a good person
3: <laughs> it's interesting because I had a slightly different interpretation of that moment but I thought that like it's Percy finally scoring a hit on him and that's like the final straw because like that wasn't
2: supposed to happen no that's the other part of it is that like if Percy is willing to hurt him that means that he needs to stop holding himself back
3: yeah and then it's just like immediately reestablishing like, no, I could fucking kill you right now.
2: Yeah, because I, I think it's those two things working together where it's like, he, I can't let him think that he can hurt me here. Because I'm, I'm trying very hard not to hurt him. And if he is in this fight looking to hurt me, then that's um, bad. <laughs> mm. But then it's that combined with the fact that he does that to Percy while Percy is mid-apology. This kid is apologizing to you and doesn't want to be hurting you. That means that there's still a part of this relationship that he wants to salvage and that this isn't completely broken and then Luke turns around and breaks it completely. Hmm. Like that specific moment was what had me thinking about like all of the people who Luke cares about who he hurts so badly. Hmm. While they still care about him.
3: (laughs) Yeah. And this also is the moment that Annabeth throws her knife at him to stop him from hurting Percy. The knife.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm flashing forward. <laughs> I'm flashing forward to these three in the throne room already.
3: The thing that interested me about this moment was when he sees that Annabeth's defending Percy, he sees her protecting Percy, like you can see his heart kind of breaking a bit. Like you can see that this really gets to him in
2: a different way.
3: I just wrote down, you can see the moment he's realized he's destroyed his family.
2: Mm-hmm. Like, I, w- I was just sitting there thinking, like, what an awful moment this is on on all sides. <laughs>
3: yeah. And again, like, coming back to, like, he's probably had this whole idea that he was going to go on the run, at least with one of them again. He was going to bring back this these moments from his own past, and then you watch him destroy it ironically watch him destroy it by not listening by kind of being imposing his own ideas of how the world should be so he's again like it's like you're watching him want to break the cycle but perpetuating it in real time like he's the one that's pushing everybody away that's making them not a collective he's the one that's he's the dad
2: Hmm. <laughs> i found myself watching this scene almost immediately focusing in on what this scene must be like from Annabeth's perspective. Like I'm imagining from Annabeth's perspective I that she's been wrestling with like a million different emotions invisibly Mm -hmm. throughout this entire scene because like she's going through the same not exactly the same realization as percy because i guess if she followed them out there she must have realized this before percy or at least really uh, realized that something was going on before percy but i'm just imagining this scene from annabeth's perspective getting confirmation of like i don't i don't even know if she could have anticipated like i was about to say of her worst fears and then i was like I don't think she could have she had the foresight to fear exactly what's happening here yeah I was watching this scene and thinking about there's a line in the lightning thief at the very end when Percy wakes up from being poisoned and has to tell everyone what happened and Annabeth has a line where she says like I can't believe Luke would and then she kind of like cuts herself off and then she's like actually I can't believe he would and she says something about him like coming back from his quest wrong And so I imagine that that's kind of what's in her head as she's watching this is she's like, I can't believe Luke would do this. And then like very quickly is like, I can't believe Luke would do this. All of this makes sense. Yeah. It's too bad she was invisible. Would love to see her have that realization (laughs) and like put together that she is going to have to interfere right now between these two people who she really cares about. Like what was the moment that she chose to interfere? How long was she watching before she jumped in? What did Percy and Annabeth say or do after Luke disappeared? I have so many questions. <laughs> I just well, generally, just in general, I'm looking forward to exploring this relationship and how Annabeth views it in future seasons, which I I mean feels natural to see of monsters anyway, especially with like Annabeth tries to swim home and uh, the scene with the coffin at the beginning on the Princess Andromeda and like her anger in that scene and just all of the Thalia backstory stuff like it feels natural to the next book so I'm I expect to look back on this scene in the future and be able to see more of Annabeth's perspective in it because I think right now it's it's being filmed mostly from like Luke's perspective and sort of from Percy's perspective I think that moment when Annabeth shows up is very clearly in Luke's perspective and so I think you know as as we get into the next season as we keep going we'll be able to look back at this scene and like Hopefully be able to see it clearly through Annabeth's eyes.
3: Guys, we just talked about this scene for two hours. Yep. <laughs> this is not going to be reflected in the final round time, but you need to know this. I want you all to know this.
2: <laughs> Great. Cool. Commercial break, finally. <laughs> yeah. Karen comes up to Percy and recommends that Percy, when he leaves camp, go with an armed escort. And Percy says, I don't think Luke wants to kill me. And Chiron says, um, that he doesn't think so either because he thinks that Luke probably still wants Percy on his side. Chiron also has a line here in this scene where he says, you have to be very careful. You're more than a hero now. You are a leader in the eyes of your fellow half-bloods. And I feel like there's a little bit, like, there, there are a couple things going on with this line, but the big part of it that stuck out to me was that it reminded me of, again, what Poseidon said about... Thalia in the Poseidon-Zeus encounter where he said that she mm-hmm. like she remained a, a hero in the eyes of all of her fellow episodes I can't remember exactly what the line was that he had but again Percy and Thalia I felt this a lot at the end of this season in this episode specifically was Percy and Thalia as this like living and dead versions of each other with mm-hmm. one being like the dead hero who we all look back on and look up to and then Percy being the the living version of that
3: and then we see annabeth by thalia's tree
2: in mm-hmm. her little Love braids her hair I. her hair <laughs> oh
3: it's so good interesting that she thinks thalia would be really happy for
2: her to i know back to her dad <laughs> i was like would she be <laughs> if you say so if you say so i did i like that percy walks up saying how does she feel about all of this like you going home to yeah. see your dad and her being like Well, she's a tree.
3: It's like a fun, a neat little reversal of she had the fate of a pine cone. Mm
2: -hmm. I was like, look at him. Look how far he's come. He respects her dead friend, (laughs) finally. (laughs) But yeah, the version of, of Thalia that exists in Annabeth's head is clearly different from the version that Luke had in the books, which lines up. Like, we talked plenty about the versions of Thalia that Annabeth remembers versus the one that Luke remembers in Sea of Monsters. So good to keep an eye on for next season. So Annabeth tells him that her dad is going to take her to New York and she's going to have to pretend she's never been there. And then he's going to take her to Disney World for the first time.
3: Um, we could do a Patreon-exclusive episode where Phoebe just sits down with a microphone and talks through Annabeth's first visit to Disney World. Oh,
2: I I know she has opinions on so, <laughs> so many of those rides. And they all coincide with mine. That's crazy. <laughs> It's too bad it's Disney World, not Disneyland. The better park.
0: <laughs>
3: I did love when Percy says to her, "Be a kid," because mm-hmm. I think that after our episode five discussion, that really solidified for me as like I think a big piece, if not the biggest element of Annabeth's arc this season. She, as we were introduced to her, is not a kid. As we kind of mentioned, she's introduced as like a general. She's the one that's thinking ahead. She's the one that's always got a plan. And then you see her, and she's so tiny. But I think, like, you see throughout the season, you see that she is that person, but Percy's sort of helping bring out this aspect of her that is more like him and the way he sees the world where he's been able to have a childhood. And you also see the inverse where you see her influence on him and you see him embracing the mythological world more and you see him understanding it more and, like, coming to that piece. So I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. It's a neat little... Neat little moment, I think, that does a good job summing up her arc. And then Percy saying, let's make a pact to Grover and Annabelle.
2: There was not nearly enough Grover in this episode. Can I just say that?
3: Yeah, he did get his searchers license, though
2: you know what's what's funny though is he's like no one's checked the seas and i was like actually many people have checked the seas it's just no one has lived to report on it
3: (laughs) yeah i'm i like this setup Mm -hmm. i like the setup it's good that grover's like
2: i'm gonna do something that no one else has ever done in their lives and it's like "Uh uh-oh grover
3: (laughs) (laughs) and they make a pact phoebe there's three of them making a pact
2: i was like "Uh (laughs) uh-huh
3: the big 3 make a pact if you will yep. like i, I th- what could possibly go wrong
2: i was like i can see this haunting every season but at least at least next season we know that that's how that book ends is in front of thaliaist for you and the 3 of them plus a newcomer <laughs> <laughs> um so percy heads off to back to montauk in another we'll realize soon half dream half memory and then we get like the I mean first of all we we do need to mention that like the scene is touching and beautiful and I loved it. Yes. Um but the important part that I need to talk about is when, when she like stands up straight and her face goes blank and she says it's time to wake up. And then like the horror of like the lighting changing and turning around and he's on your porch. I was like yeah. back up like <laughs> <laughs> he's so close <laughs> that was so good it's so scary when you like you turn around and he's he's that close it's like I knew that he was gonna get close because we were told that by Eric and Jeff but then when you turn I, around the and he's fact there, that he's
3: coming into the Montauk cabin yeah. it feels it's different. like no
2: this is a temple you're not allowed in here <laughs> yeah, exactly and he says well he says a couple things but he says soon enough we'll meet in your world if you can survive what's next and Percy says, "Well, it turns out I'm pretty good at this. So when you're serious, come find me." And Kronos says, "That is my hope. Your your survival is key to my return." Technically true. Eventually, in book four, technically true that his survival is key to his return.
3: I I feel like this moment is where a lot of the Golden Age stuff also crystallized for me watching it because fire erupts in this hearth, and I sort of marked it. I think in episode one, like the fact that there's like a the hearth in the center of this home. Like, it feels very, like, ancient in terms of, like, the fire is the home. Like, very Hestia, you know, as mm-hmm. we'll kindly learn from the books. There's also, like, a fire. The Percy's sitting at a campfire in his first Chrono Stream when he's in the desert. The first thing these fires kind of conjure for me, especially, like, the campfire is, like, ancient storytelling ancient times where like that is the center of the community the center of the home where it's required for survival for warmth where you're in like a tent or you're in like a pretty bare bones place without a lot of the comforts of you know modern times but like in the Chrono Streams, there is these fires and this visual callback to an ancient time but there's none of the warmth there's none of the family there's none of the community there's none of the home feeling especially with this particular lighting change in this cabin like it it sucks all of that out of the room Mm -hmm. and i connect this back to the golden age thought because again it was just interesting to me how Kronos in this as we see he's depicted he's got like you kind of see a bit of a beard like you see him in these like tattered robes you see him with this lamp like he again is very reminiscent he's like the father time he's like a almost a primordial figure So, I think it's just so interesting getting told in one scene, like the golden age. That's where we need to go. That's when Kronos ruled. And then you see Kronos and he sucks all of the light and all of the joy out of Montauk. Yeah. Anyway,
2: then Percy wakes up and it's the first day of seventh grade.
3: (laughs) And I love Sally has a dream journal. Like she's like, oh, all right, you had another Kronos dream. Ready, say, let me write it down. Yeah. And Percy. It does avoid telling her that Percy said that, that Kronos said his survival was the key to his rise. And I do think that was intentional. He didn't just want to tell his mom he loved her and he did and he wasn't sick of talking about Kronos. He he definitely did not want to tell her that part.
2: Also, he is the most generic boy bedroom. <laughs> there are a couple small details or I was like I like the drawings behind his bed like he has the astronaut above his desk that he clearly drew and like what looks like a doodle sheet above his bed. He's got a skateboarder on his wall, a gaming headset. He has Halo in his shelf but it doesn't have the Xbox logo on it so it might just be a book about Halo. And then as as the episode closes out we get another moment of narration from Percy. The quote is the stories you heard about Greek gods heroes and monsters I'm here to tell you they're real if you ever feel like you don't fit like the world doesn't make sense then you might be a part of our world so don't give up because we might need you for the fight ahead
3: so it sounds like he's recruiting
2: right I was I literally in in caps I have recruit question mark question mark <laughs> <laughs> just because we had that whole conversation and uh, I think for the Titans curse, Titans curse, where we were mm-hmm. talking about them recruiting. And now that we have Luke saying, I'm here to recruit, it's... <laughs> but what I was more focused on in this moment was the change. It's it's like how I've talked about how the, the opening lines of the whole show are Percy quoting both Luke and Kronos. We realized throughout mm-hmm. the season that now he kind of, like, amends them. Mm. And so now these lines are quoting Sally... When she's telling him that he's a demigod in the Montauk scene and also Kyron's opening lines when he's saying that the gods, heroes, and monsters all show us what we're capable of. It's just a much more hopeful version of it. Like the whole don't give up and like trying to use his story rather than using it as like a warning to the reader or viewer. It's now a more hopeful like, I actually want you to hear this because we might need you for, mm. we might need you later and also you might be a part of this, so let me make sense of it for you. Mm. He also, he's not only quoting Kyron, he's also quoting Krusty with the, if you ever feel like you don't fit. So I do think that, <laughs> I do still think that Krusty got into his head with that one. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, we also zoom out looking at a rainy, fi- the rainy fire escape, which I was like, Hmm. I think that's symbolism for unresolved to Sally.
2: And, like, I don't know. I don't know where we landed with that moment in the first episode. I don't totally remember, but it felt like a safe place for her. Mm-hmm. So I guess symbolizing they're in a safe place now. <laughs> yeah. And
3: there, I don't think there's any evidence of Gabe. So I think the timeline on this is a little different.
2: yeah. I, I I don't know what's going on with <laughs> we could t- let's talk about Gabe. <laughs> yeah.
3: So there's our, our fun little post credit scene.
2: Um, I obviously miss having a good murder here. <laughs> yeah. I I love a good murder, but this is another one of those things that I just never expected them to actually put to screen, knowing that children are watching. And that you don't have like the book filtering what they see. It's like actually in front of them. And also I feel like this is something that we had to sacrifice in order to have the Medusa episode that we got and for Percy learning the myths from his mom and to have the ambiguity there and the direction that we took the Sally and Medusa parallels that we were picking up on in The Lightning Thief. Because in this version of the story, Sally has a very different relationship to medusa's story yeah and would have had a very different reaction to her son perseus coming home with her head as a trophy and then asking her if she wanted him to kill her husband (laughs) like in that version it's like who just who just came home to you which i mean would have been a, a fascinating conversation to see play out but it's not the story that we're telling with this version of sally or with sally and percy's relationship like, it would just be a totally different moment for the two of them all together. Like, yeah. you can't include that moment in this version of the story and have the story play out the same way. So instead, Gabe gets what's coming to him. He brings his death upon himself, which is fitting.
3: Package thieves deserve this fate. Yeah. I My theory was if it was somebody doing it on purpose, it was Poseidon.
2: We, we can say that Poseidon did this. More more points to Pisali, really. <laughs> In the book, the package appears on Percy's bed, so he he easily could have put it inside of the apartment and not killed Gabe. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he, I feel like
3: this is Poseidon protecting Sally. This this was subtly. still
2: murder, just on someone else did it. <laughs>
3: The other interesting little bow that's on it is, like, they are debating how to keep Medusa's head safe from people so they don't accidentally stumble onto it Mm -hmm. in episode three. And then when Gabe opens the box, the box turns to stone, too. So he actually is the solution to that
2: problem. Oh, I didn't notice that the box also turned.
3: Yeah, like, he, her head's in that box, and he's, that's it. It's Mm. gone.
2: And you know what? She can still sell his body. (laughs) And she can still go to NYU, guys. I think we're done here. I think it's time to talk about a bead. (laughs) I'm, I am stuck between several images. The glowing H is an interesting symbol to me. I
3: want, I want the terrifying hearth in Montauk. That's what I want. That's my bead. Hmm. The hearth with no light and warmth.
2: Yeah. I'll just do the glowing H.
3: Yeah. Why is it an H? Is it a gift from Hermes? Or is it just like every person who gives Luke a magic item is like, this will have to remind you of your parents.
2: (laughs) He can't escape. That poor kid. (laughs) He can't. He's doomed. He's so doomed. (laughs) Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Next time... We have a a very, very special episode. You'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Now that we've wrapped up the first season, that means that we have our wrap-up coming up. So if you have any questions or thoughts or analyses or arguments that you want to send in for us to talk about, please send them our way. Thank you to everyone who has already sent some in. We've got some interesting questions sitting here on our our email already. Which is monsterdonutpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com.
3: You can also uh, message us on our social media. We are at PJOPod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can also leave comments on Spotify if you're on mobile. Yeah, I'm excited to dig in.
2: Also on all the social media, you can find our link tree where you can get merch. You can also find our Patreon. And on, on that topic, thank you to our patrons. <laughs> RK. Winda Wells, Emily Ann Bonney, Roman Consul, Latino Kaya, Patty VCK, Bethany from Public Works, Sydney Fox, Joke, Reina Avila Ramirez-Arellano, Charlie McNeil, Bronte Lebo, Chief in Plays, Robert Gamer, Kels, Kari, Leila Hussein, Mason Bowman, Casey Cassidy, and Evelyn Zamudio. Thank you all for taking this this journey with us through the first season. I know.
3: <laughs> and here's to hopefully many more. Mm-hmm. If you want to laugh really hard, go watch the first minute of Phoebe's video essay.
2: Yeah, I need to go back and rewatch my video essay and uh see what I was right about. Oh, also our our predictions episode. I need to go back and re-listen yeah. to our predictions because I know we got something. You definitely
3: I, you definitely made a joke about the sword fight flashback I in did. our predictions episode. I, I,
2: did, I did joke <laughs> that there were going to be sword fighting flashbacks, but it was a joke. I didn't think it would really
3: happen. <laughs> we gotta joke more often. We gotta make joke predictions more often.
2: Yeah, apparently they're always right. <laughs> okay, bye everybody. Bye.